6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 1 through 4. What is our heart, soul, spirit, and mind? What do those words mean? And they hold the key to our internal structure. And so I invite you to check out my wife's materials. I can tell you there's also a plan in our institute to have those materials involved in uh, for spiritual hygiene and, and personal walk uh, courses. And so uh, based on uh, my, my wife's discoveries. So I'll let you check that out on our website. Uh, Solomon's Temple has been modeled... Uh, many of the experts that have studied this, they all have slightly different perceptions of certain things. Um, almost every one of them that I get sent by some author, I show Nan and she points out where they're wrong about this or that because she's done her homework on this subject. But this at least gives you one impression of the storerooms on the outside there. There are the ten lavers and there is the wash basin, the laver with the twelve oxen modeled underneath it and of course the Holocaust altar. That's one rendering of it. And... Uh, now these things are things wherein Solomon was instructed for the building of the house of God. The length of cubits after the first measure was three score cubits, and the breadth twenty cubits. So these are just bigger, bigger, bigger. Now the porch that was in front of the house, the length of it was according to the breadth of the house, twenty cubits, and the height was a hundred and twenty, and he overlaid it with pure gold. So this is quite a structure. And the greater, uh, the greater house he sealed with fir tree, and which he overlaid with fine gold, and set thereon palm trees and chains. He garnished the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was the gold of Parvain. And he overlaid also the house, the beams, the posts, and the walls thereof, and the, door, the doors thereof with gold, and engraved cherubims on the walls. So once you were inside, this thing was overwhelming. It was all gold. All gold. And he made the most holy house, the length thereof, according to the breadth thereof, 20 cubits. The original tabernacle was ten. This is now, everything's double. Everything's bigger, see? Drink you. So you overlaid it with fine gold anointing uh, to 600 talents. The weight, of the, the weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold. And he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. And the most holy house he made, two cherubims of image work, and overlaid them with gold. And the wings of the cherubims were 20 cubits long, and one wing of one cherub was five cubits reaching to the wall of the house, and the other wing was likewise five cubits, reaching to the wing of the other cherub. So visualize these two winged creatures, huge. Between them stood the Ark of the Covenant. Don't confuse that with the two cherubim that are on the cover, on the, on the mercy seat. These huge uh, statuettes, if you will. The one wing of the other cherub was five cubits, seven and a half feet, in other words, reaching to the wall of the house, and the other wing was five cubits, also joined to the wing of the other cherub. So you've got 7 plus 7, 7 plus 7, so you've got, you know, 28-foot span all the way across, and right in the middle is the uh, Holy Holies, is the, is the uh, Ark of the Covenant. The wings of these cherubim spread themselves over 20 cubits, and they stood on their feet and their faces inward. And I don't know if you can see that very well, but that's a, a computer construction of the, what it probably would look like. And there's a computer modeling thing going on here. 
And he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson and fine linen and wrought cherubs thereon. And he also made before the house two pillars of thirty and five cubits high. The chapter that was on the top of each of them was five cubits. So these are two pillars, thirty-five cubits high. That's, what's that, a hundred feet? What's a foot and a half times thirty-five? It's up there. Hmm? And he made changes in the oracle and put them on the heads of the pillars and made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. And he reared up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and called the name of that on the right hand, Yachin, and the name of that on the left, Boaz. They have names in his counsel and in his strength. And the, 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 the names of those are extremely profound. They're descriptive of the architectural role they have in a software sense. Now, this is the model, and... Uh, it's our understanding from other sources that the pillars are there, but they don't hold anything up. Most people who make a model can't resist the idea, well, they must be holding up something. They apparently were there for other reasons, symbolic reasons. But it is what it is. There they are. That's one artist's guess as to what they probably looked like. Let's go to the furnishings. Moreover, he made an altar of brass, 20 cubits, the length thereof, 20 cubits, the breadth thereof, 10 cubits, the height thereof. That's 15 feet high. That's hard to get at. That's why you have to have a ramp and steps, whatever. And he made a molten sea of 10 cubits from brim to brim, round and compass, and five cubits in the height thereof, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it round about. This is in Second Chronicles chapter 4, verse 2. It's literally the same as Second uh, uh, Kings 7.23, which you'll look at in a minute. The molten sea is the King James way, molten meaning brass, it's, it's, it's cast, and a sea meaning a laver. It's just, molten sea doesn't rate it to us, but it, it's like a cast bowl, okay? A bronze, huge bronze bowl. It's ten cubits in diameter, and it's five cubits deep. The cubit's a foot and a half, so it's about seven and a half feet deep. It's intended to be a place that you could bathe in. And it's, it's supported by 12 oxen, is the way Solomon did it. But there's an interesting problem here. I can remember vividly when I was a kid in uh, high school. A friend of mine was a son of a Unitarian minister, so he knew his Bible, sort of. But he always made fun of me because I took the Bible seriously. He says, well, you think it's, you, there are no errors in it? Absolutely. What about 1 Kings 7.23? He always hit that way. That was one of the things he'd throw up. Because it says that the circumference of this thing is 30 cubits. It's 10 cubits in diameter and 30 cubits. Well, any schoolboy knows that the circumference is not 3 times the diameter. It's pi times the diameter. 3.14159, whatever. Right? And uh, so it's an error. Not a big deal. But gee, Chuck, I thought that but you said the Bible doesn't. There's a mistake. Well, I didn't have an answer for him in those days. But um, a rabbi pointed out something interesting to me. This is 1 Kings 7.23, the equivalent, the one, I'll, I'll use it as my model here. I, and there's the translation that we have in our English, but in the Hebrew, it's written, remember it goes from right to left, right? When the Masoretes copied a manuscript and there was something that they thought was a mistake, they didn't correct it. They marked it and put the correct thing in the margin. And uh, so... 
the thing that was called, what apparent mistake, they called a kathiv. But the thing, the correction for it was a kiri. And so you've got the word for the line about the thing, circumference is misspelled. There's a misspelling here. It's got an extra letter, a hey. Well, in Hebrew alphanumerics, there's two, two languages have, the letters have numerical values. Only two, by the way. Roman has value for a few of the letters. Only a few. You can't, you don't, you don't use the whole Roman alphabet for Roman numerals. You only use six letters. Which add up to 666, by the way. But anyway, the uh, Hebrew and the Greek have a numerical uh, value for every letter. And uh, that turns out to be a useful thing. Now these are the values of the Hebrew alphabet, 1 through 900. Um, and there's a spelling lesson here. The kathiv, the apparent way it's written in uh, the scripture, is a kapf of av and a hey. The way it should be spelled, the kiri, is a kapf and a vav. And that's the way it is in the margin. A kapf is worth a hundred, a vav is worth six, and a hey is five. Now the hey you don't miss because it's just, it's a final breath. How do you tell? You can't hear it, you know. But the way this thing should be written is 106. But the way it is written, it's 111. Well, when you correct that ratio, it turns out that the circumference that is thus implied is accurate on a 46-foot length. It's, there's an error of less than 15 thousandths of an inch. I thought that's pretty acceptable. <laughs> now, the way this is often explained by others is just, the, well, the difference is a hand breadth, the thickness the thick, you know, the, 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 it's, thir, it's, thir, it's 30 cubits to the inside diameter and that on the outside. They, 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 they finesse the problem away that way. But I want to throw something in here just as extra credit. This didn't cost you extra, but I want to throw this in here. I'm going to give you an epistemological addenda. Epistemology is study of knowledge. It's scope and limits. How do you know anything? One of the things that scientists are concerned about is there are certain constants in the universe and they're not sure they're constant. There's a great deal of concern that the constants of the universe are changing, and that's got everybody concerned. The velocity of light now is finally recognized as slowing down. We said that for 20 years, because of Barry Setterfield's landmark work. In the last two or three years, there have been reputable articles in reputable journals saying, by the way, the speed of light is slowing down. He was right after all. There are fundamental constants. There are many of them in the universe. And there are studies going on to see if they're changing. It's very hard to determine, but they're working very hard to see if they are changing. And there was an article in Scientific American in June of 2005 on this very subject. But one little phrase near the end of it leapt out at me that I had to, it just startled me. They believe the change, that, that, that these, some of these constants may be changing, and if so, it implies that our physical universe is actually a mere shadow of a larger reality. That's their words, not mine. And I'm fascinated by that because that's what the Bible's been saying all along. We call it the spiritual world. It's not fuzzy. It's more real than the world we're in, but I won't start down that path just right now. But there are two key verses in the Bible on creation. Genesis 1.1, obviously, and John 1.1, right? They both speak of God creating the universe. There, if you're in science, in mathematics, whatever, there are two constants of the universe that have no dimensions. You see, a, a constant that has dimensions, like speed of light, can change, presumably. But a constant that has no dimensions can't change. Pi is not going to change, because it is an intrinsic relationship to the geometry of a circle. You follow me? 
Well, there are two of these things. Pi, of course, is one of them. We just talked a little bit about that. There's another one you probably have not run into unless you've been in calculus or advanced math or advanced engineering. There's a thing called a natural logarithm. There are logarithms, but there's one particular one that's logged to the base E that shows up everywhere in advanced mathematics. It's as familiar to a mathematician as pi is to a schoolboy. Okay? Well, let's take a look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If you take the Hebrew of that out of Genesis 1.1, and you're going to do a strange thing, I'm going to suggest. You're going to take the number of letters times the product of those letters. And you're going to divide it by the number of the words times the product of the words. Recognizing that those alphabets have value, you can go through that arithmetic. If you do, it turns out, you end up with pi to four decimal places. Now, if someone handed me a paper, this was like when I was in uh, mid-country mid in England. And I first sort of dismissed it, one of these, you know, fringe kind of things. I looked at it, fine, it was polite. And on the plane back, though, I said, you know, i got to check this out. And I did. I built a little computer program in Excel to check the letters. and stuff. Anyway, turns out it's true. That blew me away. I don't know what to do with that. It's just too, it's too precise to ignore. But I'm not through. That's pi, of course. I don't know what to do with the, you know, the 17 zeros, but let me go on here. John Napier was a mathematician in the end of the 16th century. He happened to be an activist for the Reformation and Protestant affairs in Scotland, but that's not what we have him here. He is the inventor of, or discoverer of logarithms. The natural or Napierian logarithm is named after him, log to the base E. He also was the first to use decimal point in fractions. In wave mechanics you find E, in electrical theory, in advanced math, in distribution of prime numbers, um, it's defined by a limit. I won't, if you, these are totally diverse applications. Everywhere you turn out, there's E, and E is turned out is 2.71, 8, 2, and 8. Now, how they get it, it's not important. It's like pi. It's one of these weird numbers, but it's somehow intrinsic to our physical universe. Okay, so what? The other verse that's basic to creation is the New Testament verse, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, John 1, 1. If you take that in the Greek and do the same thing I suggested before, take the number of letters times the product of the letters and divide that by the number of words times the product of the words, you get E to four decimal places. Now, what do you do with that? I have no idea. This is one of these weird observations that you, doesn't prove anything exactly, but anyone that has a feeling for mathematics, it's stunning because you've got the fingerprint of the Creator here in the text. And it, the rabbis have a strange belief. Some of the rabbis have a view that not only did God create the universe, but the Torah was the template by which He did it. And when I first heard that, I thought it's a typical Jewish exaggeration. But after seeing this, I'm beginning to suspect they may be more correct than I had any idea. Well, let's move on. Let's keep moving here. Second Chronicles chapter 4. Under it was the similitude of the oxen, which did compass it round about, ten and a cubit, compassing the sea round about. Two rows of oxen were cast when it was cast, and it stood upon the twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three toward the south, uh, to the west, three towards the south, three towards the east. And the sea was set above them, and all their hinder parts were inward. That's, that's a quick picture of the, of the, the laver. As, 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 this is just represented by one artist's speculation as how this looked. There's the, the molten sea and the, and the ten lavers. 
And the thickness of it was like a hand breadth, and the brim of it like the, the work of a brim of a cup with the flowers and the lilies that received and held 3,000 baths also. He made also ten lavers, put five on the right hand, five on the left, to wash them. Such things as they offered for the burnt offering, they washed in them. But the sea was for the priests to wash in. Okay? There's the model of the way one artist visualizes the way this probably ended up. And it's to scale, you get a rough idea of a... Now, I don't know how they got up there to wash in, but that's part of the... And he made ten lampstands of gold according to their form, and set them in temple, five on the right hand and five on the left. He made also ten tables, placed them in the temple, five on the right side, five on the left. And he made a hundred basins of gold. And I, I, I've taken the trouble again, I want to remind you, I put lampstands there, because the term in the Hebrew is menorah. So they're not candlesticks, okay. Um, furthermore, he made the court of the priests and the great... And that's the same term, by the way, in Revelation chapter 1, 4, and 5, where he speak the lampstands representing the churches. They're not candlesticks, they're lampstands. Anyway. Furthermore, he made the court of the priests, of the great court, the doors of the court, overlaid the doors of them with brass, and he set the sea on the right side of the east end and over against the south. And Hiram made the pots and the shovels and the basins, and Hiram finished the work that he was to make for the king of Solomon, for the house of God. To wit, two pillars, the pommels, the chapters, which were on the top of the pillars, and the two wreaths to cover the pommels of the chapters, which were on the top of the pillars. And... Uh, 400 pomegranates of the two wreaths and two rows of pomegranates on each wreath to cover the two pommels of the chapters which were up on the pillars. He made also the bases, the labors. He made upon the bases one sea, 12 oxen under it, pots also, the shovels and the flesh hooks and all their instruments did Hiram's father make to King Solomon for the house of the Lord of bright brass. And the plain of the Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zeredatha. Thus Solomon made all these vessels in a great abundance, for the weight of the brass could not be found out. And Solomon made all the vessels that were for the house of God, the golden altar also, the tables thereon the showbread was set, moreover the lampstands with their lamps, that they should burn after the manner of the oracle of pure gold. And the flowers and the lamps and the tongs were made of gold, that, and that perfect gold. And the snuffers and the, base, and the basins... And the spoons, the censers, the pure gold, and the sentry of the house, the inner doors thereof, for the most holy place, the doors of the house of the temple, were of gold. Whew. Okay. So we had a tabernacle, the first temple, that's the one we've been talking about. Don't confuse it with the second temple or Nehemiah that was then expanded by Herod. Or the third temple that we talk about prophetically. And, uh, and of course Ezekiel's temple, which comes after the, after the Lord comes and sets up his kingdom. This is a model of what it looked like, probably something like this, in the days of Nehemiah, when they come back from Babylon, and they build their wall under, under Nehemiah. This is a model, as some people visualize, the so-called Second Temple, or what we more commonly would call Herod's Temple. It's very important, because this was the temple, whatever it was like, when Jesus was here. And don't confuse the many illustrations and things you see in your books. Distinguish this from Solomon's Temple, which was before that, and much more elegant. Not as big, but much more elegant. They found stones that make up the retaining wall. This one, you see the kid with his finger. There's another kid you can hardly see in the shadows there with the other hand. That stone that's sitting there is 45 feet long, 11 and a half feet high. It's been estimated by Dan Bahat as weighing 570 tons. We would have a hard time in modern day with machinery available to us to handle something like that. That's astonishing. This is, now, that's not part of the temple. It's part of the retaining wall. But still, you, the, the, the craftsmanship, the technology is astonishing. And these stones fit so tightly, you can't put a piece of paper between them. 
This is the Holy Land Hotel model. It's very well known. Again, it's an attempt by the, the best scholars at, in that day of trying to represent what they believe Herod's temple, not Solomon's, Herod's temple looked like, just to give you a perspective. This is the floor plan of it, as rendered by uh, uh, Lean Rittmeyer in his recent book. It represents a digest of what the scholars seem to, uh, the way they believe things arranged. The, the, the authorities being, of course, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the writings of Josephus, and some other uh, uh, contemporary writings to try to describe what was it like. It's a compilation of a lot of conjectures, to be frank with you. And there's still a lot of debates about all the details. Even of this temple, let alone Solomon's, is even more mysterious. This is a, a picture of a model looking down on the Azurah. Not, you know, not the, just this, the front end of it yet. Uh, the, the 15 steps, the steps of ascent into the, the first entry there. And then if you look down in the Azurah, that's behind that. That's where the offerings were actually made. Um, and that's, just, that's, again, just a perspective of, of a conjecture. If you take an aerial picture of the temple area today, this is north at the top. This is what it looks like. And the traditional view is that Solomon's original temple stood where the Dome of the Rock stands. And that is the official view of many, including Lee and Rittmeyer and some of the experts. But there are experts, Dr. Asher Kaufman being a notable one, who has a, spent a lifetime studying this. And he, has, he published a conjecture that it uh, actually stood about 100 meters to the north. Over 20 years ago, he highlighted that. And it created quite a stir because it, if he was correct, the um, Dome of the Rock stands in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And that seems to confirm, uh, be conform with Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, which it fits. But actually, there's a lot of technology that suggests just the opposite, that the, the original temple stood actually to the south of the Dome of the Rock, about the same, about 100 meters, um, and I'll call that the Southern Conjecture. It's espoused in modern times by Tuvia Segev. The Knesset asked us to reestablish the temple conferences that we started many years ago, which we did this last year, and uh, had Tuvia come and present the latest studies. And it's really quite impressive. Asher was there also to, exp to explain his Northern Conjecture. Um, but we also had Tuvia somewhat stole the show with a uh, an enormous amount of information that suggests, not proves, but suggests the Southern Conjecture. We really won't know which is correct until we're allowed on the Temple Mount to, to do some archaeology. Meanwhile, the, it's under Muslim control, and with dump trucks and, and uh, bulldozers, they're destroying everything they can find that has any hint of Jewish presence. 20,000 tons of artifacts have been dumped on the city dumps by this, this movement. But anyway, those of you that are interested in this, uh, we have a, a, the Temple Conference in 2006. We've published those proceedings. Um, Lean Rittmeyer has just come out with a book on the Temple Mountain Jews. Very elegant coffee table type of book, very digesting a great deal of background. He has a number of views that we would take some exception with, but it's obviously a monumental piece of work. Randall Price is also a close friend, uh, and he's done a number of books uh, uh, in this area. He's a very competent archaeologist and has a dig going on in Qumran as we speak. But he's a competent guy. And uh, Asher Kaufman published way back in, uh, uh, well, he published a recent book that he gave us at the Temple Mount Conference. But he also, he's done a number of books and articles. One of the early ones uh, was in 1983 when he first uh, presented publicly the, the, his theory about the Northern Conjecture. So there's plenty of information around if you're interested. In the next session, 
we're going to uh, talk about the dedication of the temple. And I'd like you to read Second Chronicles 5 through 8. And I want you to continue as we go through Chronicles, Second Chronicles, to keep an eye on the Ark of the Covenant. Because by the time we get to chapter 35, we're going to uh, encounter some surprises that are widely overlooked in the general community about the apparent whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. So we'll start watching for that. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just praise you for who you are. We thank you, Father, that one greater than the temple is here among us. But, Father, we thank you for the insights. We pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you'd help us glean what it is you'd have for us out of all of these things. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit to guide us and illuminate that path before us. We thank you, Father, that we indeed are now your temple. We thank you, Father, that you have, before we've loved you, you've, cho- you've loved us. And we thank you, Father. We pray that you would help each of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we each might be more faithful, more effective stewards of the opportunities before us. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for these opportunities to study your word. We pray, Father, that you would reignite in each of us a renewed hunger and passion for your word, that we indeed may continue to be encouraged by these handfuls on purpose that you drop by the wayside in front of us. We pray, Father, that you just help us to grow. But above all these things, help us, Father, to keep that great commandment. Help us, Father, to indeed love you with all our heart, like David did, with all our heart, with all our soul, all our strength, and all our mind, as we commit ourselves this day, as we commit ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.